preach that name this morning, Mephibosheth. I came across this narrative probably about a month and a half ago. Uh, Cody and I meet weekly uh, to study the Bible together on campus, and uh, uh, he came to, to uh, Bible study that morning, and uh, I hit him with the story of Mephibosheth. I had just gotten to that one chapter by the time that he got there, so I didn't see the rest of the story, and I was already just, you know, captivated by the story of Mephibosheth and have just been amazed uh, by it over the past couple of months. It's brought Lisa and I uh, a great amount of joy and comfort, you know, the, the past month, and I hope it does for you as well. I'm, I'm captivated this morning in our singing and in our prayer time, just the the hope that we have through God's grace and His grace alone. Thankful for that. There, there just seems to be a message uh, woven through each segment of, of that this morning, and I'm thankful for that, and uh, it, it comforts me. As you will see, it comforts Mephibosheth. Second Samuel chapter 9, the author who is most likely Samuel at this point writes this. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maher, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And said, and David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belong to Saul and to all his house, I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. The kindness of the king was based on his word. King David's kindness to Mephibosheth was based on his covenant. 
And to understand this, we have to go all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 20 where David's life is on the line. It's here that he's hiding from Saul. After dodging two spears that were meant for his head, that were meant to pin him to the wall, David finally fled. He is now in hiding, hiding in a field. And only one person knows where he is. That's David's loyal, faithful friend, Jonathan. He is also the son of King Saul. And their covenant relationship is the basis for what we read about in 2 Samuel 9. Amid all of this turmoil with King Saul, David and Jonathan devise a plan here. And the plan goes something like this. David says, if your father becomes angry when he sees I'm not dining at his table, then we'll know that he's determined to bring harm on me. Then Jonathan says to David, hide yourself. I'm paraphrasing here. Hide yourself in the field. When I know something about my father's intentions, I will let you know by shooting arrows in the field where you hide. If I tell my assistant the arrows are next to him, know that you're safe. If I tell if I tell my assistant that the arrows have gone beyond to walk further, to look for them, know that Saul has determined to bring harm on you. Well, we know that King Saul did become angry with David when he saw that he wasn't dining at his table. He did pursue David. That's where we get many of our Psalms from David's time in hiding when Saul was pursuing But amid this narrative, we read about a special covenant that was struck between Jonathan and David. And this covenant is very important. In fact, it's the reason this narrative even exists. It undergirds the events of which we just read about. And the covenant was this. That the Lord would take vengeance on David's enemies. Which he certainly did. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him. For David loved Jonathan as he loved his own soul, so the passage says. And later in that same passage, 1 Samuel chapter 20, Jonathan clarifies the covenant by saying to David, as David is about to flee into hiding, Jonathan says, David, go in peace. For we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants. There's the covenant. There are a number of great truths that stand out in this passage. Some that I'm sure stood out to you without any commentary needed from me. But for the sake of time, we're just going to focus on a few. And the first principle is this. That David's kindness was grounded in covenant. David's kindness to Mephibosheth was grounded in covenant. David was a man of his word. And as David is pictured in scripture as a type of Christ, this is really one of the 
great characteristics that stands out in Scripture about David. He kept covenant. He kept his word. The oath of which we read about earlier, the oath which welded David and Jonathan together, is the same oath that brought Mephibosheth into the king's home, to the king's table. And this is amazing when you think about it. Because humanly speaking, time has a way of weakening our promises. Softening our intentions, making it possible to forget our covenants. And yet we see King David holding to his oath with veracity. He's not bringing Mephibosheth in begrudgingly. He's joyful in his redemption. He knows that bringing Mephibosheth into his home is going to be costly. No doubt, King David had possession of all King Saul's land, and yet he restores it all to him. No doubt, bringing him into his home and just providing him with food is going to be costly. Just to nourish this man at his table. And yet there's going to be food to spare because Ziba and his family are called upon to serve Mephibosheth. To be ministering servants to him. And I hope you're reading between the lines in some of this. The king is going out of his way to see to it that Jonathan's lineage is cared for. And in a society when it's most prudent to not do this. Makes it even more amazing. In a society when, when someone is crowned king. What would they typically do? Wouldn't it be more prudent to wipe out any surviving member of the previous monarch? I mean, isn't that what typically happens? And yet we find King David adopting this man. The grandson of a man who sought to kill him. Now, Who does this? Who invites a man into a family marked by rebellion? And who sought to kill him? Who invites the lame in? And yet David states his intentions in no uncertain terms. He says in verse 6 of 2 Samuel 9. He says in verse 6. Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. Does it sound familiar? The angels. Anytime you see them in the New Testament, they always begin their proclamation, Don't fear. Don't fear, for I will show you the kindness. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. So there it is. There's the covenant. He immediately puts any fear of retribution, retaliation or evil doing away. And he simply adopts Mephibosheth into the family, announcing that he will eat at his table Always. The second principle is this. That grace brings gratitude. Mephibosheth's only response was gratitude. He says it best. 
is at verse 8, I believe. What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? That's the verse that captured my heart right there. Because that's what grace does. Grace brings gratitude. What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Gratitude should be the only response to God's grace. In fact, we could go as far as saying that believers should be marked by gratitude. They must be marked by gratitude. But sadly, I would say that many or most believers are marked by the opposite. You remember when Paul says, do all things without grumbling and complaining. That's the opposite of gratitude. But when the king calls you by name, when the king calls you by name, you come in gratitude. Mephibosheth was thankful that the king had called. And notice, notice the resolve of the king in saying, you will eat at my table always. Isn't that beautiful? You will eat at my table always. It wasn't a half-hearted, wishy-washy invitation. He intended to bring Mephibosheth in. And don't overlook the depth of the king's mercy in calling Mephibosheth from Lodabar. That's an interesting word. The meaning of Lodabar, the city Lodabar. It means barren land or no pasture. So you, you think about the, the gratitude, the thankfulness of Mephibosheth. And you, you wonder why he's so thankful. He's coming from a dry, barren pastureless land to the king's table in the king's home. That's why he's so gracious, so thankful. And notice how many times and how many ways King David reiterates that Mephibosheth will eat at his table. I think it's pretty clear here. The point of this passage is to say this is the king's doing. Mephibosheth coming into the king's home, coming into the king's family, coming into the king's table is of the king's doing. He is the one bringing him in. And so what does that do for us? What does that do for Mephibosheth? I think it says Mephibosheth, relax. No need to worry. No need to fear. This is of the king's doing. The king is bringing you in. And this really brings us to the heart of the message. And to the heart of 2 Samuel 9. Which is adoption. The issue of adoption. Our third principle is this. As Mephibosheth was physically adopted into King David's family. Believers are spiritually adopted into God's family. The truth of the gospel is that. We're heirs with Christ. We were debtors to the flesh, as Paul says in Romans 8. We were wasting away in a barren land until the king called us into his home, into his table. But now, what he owns, he gives to us. 
we are joint heirs. Paul says it this way in Romans eight fifteen through 17. He says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And you know, this this really is so beautiful to me. And it it really I think it leads you to a place where you ask. In a good way. Asking to prove God right, not prove God wrong. Why would God do this? It solidifies our belief in the message of redemption. And the fact that Christianity is right. Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. And let me explain what I mean. If you ask, if our condition was so terrible, then why would God even bother? If we were debtors to the flesh, if we were wasting away, if we were uh, depraved to the level that the Scripture says we were, then why would God even bother? Why would God go to the trouble creating a world in this way where He would have to go through all this? I think this is where this narrative helps us to know God a little better. See, because the oath that we have here wasn't fulfilled for Mephibosheth because of Mephibosheth primarily. I hope you're getting that. The oath here in this narrative was fulfilled for Mephibosheth because of Jonathan primarily. And so the point is this. God created the world the way he did because it pleases him. And a lot of times on our journey to knowing Christ, that's the place where we need to begin. He did it this way because it's the way evidently that he gets the most glory. God does all things for his glory. The father does all things for the son. The son does all things for the glory of the father. And the Spirit reveals this to us through the Gospel. The covenant which God made with Abraham, which was fulfilled in Christ, was for the glory of God. Paul says this in Ephesians 1. You don't have to turn there. Ephesians 1, verses 5 and 6. You know these verses well. In love, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Did you see it? Did you see why he's bringing us in? Why he adopts us? It's to the praise of his glorious grace. It's all for him. But see, we respond much differently than Mephibosheth. We're very much unlike Mephibosheth in the fact that we don't bow down and fall at the king's feet in worship, thanking him and then dining at his table with him. Now, in the way that it works out in our lives, we live as though our salvation is because of us. And that it's dependent on us. 
All the while neglecting the privilege of salvation. The privilege of salvation is something that Mephibosheth evidently understood. Because notice, he did eat at the king's table. The father wants us to enjoy the gifts he's given to us. The father wants you to enjoy the gifts that he's given to you. This is the beauty of being a son. You are adopted. You are adopted into his family. And so instead of walking around in fear and constant fear and being guilt ridden. Enjoy Christ. Enjoy your freedom in Christ. What you receive. Receive with thanksgiving. There's nothing wrong with enjoying his gifts. Just make sure that you don't love the king's stuff more than you love the king. And this was the problem with Ziba. And we're going to see a, a striking difference between Ziba and Mephibosheth. Between the one who's seeing how the one who is not redeemed views the king's stuff and seeing how the one who is redeemed sees the king's stuff. Following this point in the narrative, 2 Samuel 9, King David experiences a number of setbacks. You know what those are. An adulterous affair with his neighbor. Conspiracy for murder. Repentance after the rebuke of Nathan. A son who dies uh, due to that in discipline of the Lord. Um, all sorts of turmoil in his family. A daughter raped by a son. Murder within the family. Conspiracy by a son to take the throne, which eventually happens. Which leads us uh, to chapter 16. And David is leaving Jerusalem. He has to leave Jerusalem. Absalom is taking the throne. And I'm sure uh, as we read 2 Samuel 9, it, it's possible that some of you wondered what Ziba the servant thought about all this. I know it, it did for me. It made me wonder. Did he ever truly want to take on the task of serving Mephibosheth? Or was, was he simply doing this begrudgingly only due to the king's orders? And I think we get our answer here. We see in this passage, chapter 16, that Ziba slanders Mephibosheth and he deceives the king. Notice in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 16, we read, When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba the servant of Mephibosheth met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, a 100 bunches of raisins, a 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. And then the king said to Ziba, behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. So it seems clear here that Ziba had all the wrong motives. 
He did a good thing in bringing necessary supplies, but he did it with all the wrong motives. And you guys know that it's possible to do all the right things with all the wrong motives. We do it in our churches all the time. Ziba wanted the king's stuff. He wanted the blessings of the king, but not necessarily the king. And now let's look at Mephibosheth's response. Absalom has been killed. The conspiracy has been foiled. David, King David is going back to Jerusalem to sit on his throne. And on the way, Mephibosheth meets him. And in chapter 19, in chapter 19, beginning in verse 24, the author says this. Chapter 19, verse 24. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. Get this. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceives me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? I've decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. There he is holding to his word again, even when it gets him in trouble. He's going to be faithful to his word. Don't hold that against him. In verse 30, notice Mephibosheth's response. Oh, let him take it all. Since my Lord, the king has come safely home. What is the response of one adopted into the king's family? It's verse 30. Let him take it all. Since my Lord, the king has come safely home. The point is this. The Lord is enough. The Lord is enough. Mephibosheth, after experiencing the grace of God, wanted the king more than he wanted the king's stuff. He understood better the sovereignty of the king. He rested better. Note, notice even the response to the possibility of the king's discipline in verse 28. Did you get that? Even in light of possible discipline of the Lord, Mephibosheth said in verse 28, For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I than to cry to the king? He rested better in light of the Lord's discipline. He was miserable. Mephibosheth was miserable when he wasn't in the presence of the king. Notice in verse 24 how he had neither taken care of his feet nor trimmed his beard nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. This is the response of one brought 
to the table. One brought to the table, adopted into God's family, may be able to live without the king's stuff, but they can't live without the king. When you're not in the presence of the Lord, you're a wreck. You're you're most miserable. And don't you find that to be true, that your most miserable days are when you're focused on yourself, when everything's about you? That's my most miserable day. I believe Mephibosheth truly grasped his state. His state of depravity before the grace of the king. I believe he understood the the cost of the king in bringing him in. I believe he realized that he had no rights to inherit the land of his grandfather Saul. And so it is with us. Those brought to the table of God's grace realize God's great cost to himself in adopting us. His humiliation in becoming like those who hated him. His complete obedience in the flesh and his obedience to death on the cross where he took on the wrath of the father for the sins of all who would believe. Just like Mephibosheth, we were brought into an inheritance to which we had no right. It's all by grace that we are saved. And so the only appropriate response is that of Mephibosheth. What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? This makes for true worshipers. There's one final observation that needs to be made, and that's this. If you notice in 2 Samuel 9, there seems to be a concerted effort on the part of the author to highlight the fact that Mephibosheth is lame. Notice how he ends with what seems like a beautiful ending in 2 Samuel 9, verse 13. Find that real quick. 2 Samuel 9, verse 13. Notice this. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Great ending, right? And then the author says so awkwardly, now he was lame in both feet. You know, I'm no author, but is this really the best line that somebody could come up with to end one of the greatest narratives in the Bible? Certainly, if you're reading this passage and a lot of other passages that talk about the lame and are not reading them in terms of fulfillment, then certainly it would be anticlimactic. Some might even call it offensive. But if you're reading this through the lens of fulfillment, then it's absolutely beautiful. We'll take Leviticus 21, for example. Don't turn there. Just... Just listen to this. Notice how offensive this would be just on the surface. The author of Leviticus 21 says this. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying. Speak to Aaron saying none of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near a man blind or lame. And then it goes through other things. A man blind or lame. Now how offensive is that on the surface? 
What's the apparent message there? That God doesn't like blind people? That God doesn't like lame people? That He only loves people who have no physical defects? If that were the case, we would all be condemned. But it's beautiful. It's a beautiful passage. The point is this. How did Christ fulfill all of this? Well, I was blind. I was lame. I was the one who couldn't approach to offer bread to my God. Until one who was my perfection, the one without blemish, without spot, interceded for me. So that I could come into the king's presence. He brought the offering that I couldn't bring. I was unholy and not able to approach. And therefore only an intercessor could do it for me. Jesus Christ brought me to God. Jesus Christ brought me to God. The question of how a holy God can dwell with an unholy people. And still retain his justice. Is answered only one way. Jesus Christ. Who died. Who rose again from the dead. And ascended into heaven where he's now seated. Not because he's tired. But because the work of redemption was finished. And so he sat in completion of that work. He sacrificed Himself to the Father so that we, you and I, those who receive Him, those who know Him, those who walk in relationship with Him, the Mephibosheths of the world, could come into His presence, into the King's home, and dine at His table. Let's pray.